right. Please turn to the book of Hebrews. Sometime in the first century, we're not sure exactly when, most likely before 70 A.D., some man of God, we're not told who, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a book that we now know as the letter to the Hebrews. But it's a remarkable fact that a book with such cloudy origins, such cloudy beginnings, uncertainty about these details, it's a remarkable fact that it could give us absolute clarity and confidence about the finished work of Christ. So tonight I'd like to introduce this amazing book to you, this book of Hebrews, in two ways. I want to, number one, I want to summarize just really briefly its basic history and its basic theology, and then I want to introduce you to its main character, hopefully give you at least a small glimpse of his glory. That's our goal tonight as we look at the prologue, the first four verses of Hebrews. Let's look at its basic history and theology. I want to draw your attention to some very basic observations on what's happening historically in this book and especially what's happening with its main theological themes. So let's ask the question first. If you can flip to the slides for me, I think we're having some technical difficulties with this one. But introducing Hebrews, what is Hebrews? What we're asking, what is this, this, this book, this letter, whatever we want to call it, what is it exactly? We call it the letter, but it really doesn't read like a letter until you get to the conclusion, until you get to the very end. Um, this book is really unique among other New Testament epistles because the author himself, he calls it a word of exhortation in the 13th chapter. Really, it's a sermon. So if reading 1 Peter this morning took us, what, about 15 minutes? Did you end up timing it? Um, if we were to read through Hebrews, about how long would that take us, you think? Should we ask the Sprout children? <laughs> it, would, it would take maybe 40, 45 minutes to read through. So it's really like a sermon, like a full-length sermon, like a podcast if you were to sit down and listen to one. One Bible teacher says it this way. He said, Hebrews begins like an essay, proceeds like a sermon, and then ends like a letter. And I think it's a good summary of, of what the book of Hebrews is. So you really can't pin it down just to one genre, one type of writing. But if you had to, I would call it a sermon. Now, who is the author? Are we going to answer that question tonight, directly at least? Uh, and I can, not from me at least. Um, the author, he never identifies himself. And this has caused some real disagreements, uh, some pretty big disagreements. So I talked to a pastor who preached through Hebrews recently, and uh, he said that someone in his church got really angry with him because he wouldn't give a definite answer. And maybe it was Paul or whatever the person was arguing for. But there's some real, real disagreement. Uh, whenever I was in, in Bible college, I had a Bible teacher that I really respected. But one day in class, he said that Paul wrote Hebrews, and he was absolutely convinced. And I thought he was joking at first, and I laughed out loud in class. I felt a little bit guilty about it. Later on, I had to apologize to him and say, hey, I'm, I was disrespectful for what I did. But I, don't, I didn't agree with him, but uh, you can see this kind of social dynamics that it can that can happen with this authorship. Another person I was trying to befriend, um, we had a meeting, we had a second meeting, and he was convinced that Priscilla wrote the letter to the Hebrews. And he was so convinced that I, I didn't really even argue with him, but he got kind of upset with me, and it was kind of like a don't call me, I'll call you kind of a thing. So this actually causes some some problems in relationships, but we're not going to say who the 
author was because it doesn't tell us. We know it was around the time of Paul, around the time of Timothy, Luke, those guys, but we're not sure exactly who it was. Now, who are the original readers? The third question we'll ask. Uh, let's ask this or answer the question first from an ethnic standpoint. Now, what's the, the, what's the title of the book? Hebrews. So that means it's just for the Jews, right? That's how it would appear at first. But that title was attached to the book, not by the author, but earlier on in church history or someone, sometime after the book was written. But it does have tons of Old Testament content, and it really assumes that the people who are reading it understand what's going on. They understand the Levitical sacrificial system. They understand the Old Testament. So I do believe we are correct to assume that there were, it was a Jewish audience. At least they had some Jewish readers. But at the same time, it's written in very polished Greek. It's actually some of the most difficult Greek to read out of the whole New Testament. And it's also using the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the, Sept, the Septuagint, to the T. It quotes it all exactly almost every single time. So I do believe it's safe to assume that you could have had some Gentiles in this audience as well. But the main thing they had in common is that they were all part of a professing community of New Testament, New Covenant believers. That's, they were always part of that community. Whether they were genuine or not, we'll find out as we study the book, but they were all part of this community. Kind of like a church, we're sitting right here. We're all professing to be part of the New Covenant, professing to be part of the body of Christ. So that's from an ethnic standpoint. But what about from a spiritual standpoint? They were facing significant trials. Turn to chapter 10. Would you mind turning this speaker down a little bit, please? It's blaring back at me. Chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made, listen to these words, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So they were be, uh, become a public spectacle, ridicule. And look, look in what some of the ways this happened. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. And, listen to this, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So they were facing significant trials, these people in this, in this community of believers. And on top of that, they were also had a lot of ambiguity. They were, have a lot of lack of clarity on the gospel. They were lacking confidence in the person and work of Christ. And as a result, they were lacking in commitment to Christ. And as you'll see in chapter 6 and chapter 5, they were becoming sluggish. They were people who had no hope. They were losing their hope in what Christ had done on the cross. So the key issue for these readers is the idea of perseverance. So really, the book of Hebrews tells us a lot about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And really, there's two sides to this coin of this doctrine. There's the God side, God's perspective, and we call that eternal security. Once God calls a person, justifies a person, sanctifies a person, is that person secure? He's eternally secure from God's perspective. There's no question about it. But at the same time, from our perspective, what do we do? We persevere. We don't preserve ourselves. Only God can do that, but we do persevere. And what does that require? That requires prodding. That requires exhortation. So that's the two, the two sides of the same coin of the perseverance of the saints, which leads us to consider how the author addresses this problem or addresses this need of persevering in the faith, of continuing on in the faith of Christ. So number four, what's Hebrews about? This book warns us of the danger of sin and unbelief. 
And most of you have heard about the warning passages in this book. There's five of them. And we'll even start one next week. And these things are not easy to swallow. There's truth in Scripture that kind of goes down nicely. But you get to the warning passages, and that kind of gets stuck midway. And there's some difficult things to consider. Uh, just listen to chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So consider that as an address to you. What if someone up here said, take care that there's not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that's going to fall away from the living God? That's a serious warning. And then verse 14, chapter 3, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance for, firm until the end. So there are some difficult warnings for us. And because of that, it teaches us the severe holiness of God. You could turn to chapter 10 briefly, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But instead, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And then chapter 12, it says, well, how does it describe God? Our God is a consuming fire, severe holiness of God. And as a result of that, this book brings us to the end of ourself. In chapter 4, verse 10, it says, there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. None of us are exempt from God's sight, from God's, from God's word looking in and seeing and exposing our sin. We're brought to the end of ourself. But as we're brought to the end of ourself, it points us to our only hope. And that hope is a mediator between God and man. And that's going to be Christ Jesus. So at the doctrinal heart of this book is the superiority of Christ Jesus himself. So if from the, the reader's perspective, if their need was perseverance, how ultimately does the author address that need? With Christ showing who he is and how he's superior, how he is better. And you see that word better all throughout the book of Hebrews to describe who Jesus is, what he's done. He's our great high priest. He is a better sacrifice than the Levitical sacrifices because his is permanent and his is effective. And his shed blood establishes a better covenant, establishes the new covenant. And this book also teaches that we become sharers, partakers, members of this new covenant by faith. And as members of this new covenant, we don't have just this world to look forward to, just this city. It says in chapter 13, we don't have here a lasting city, but we're seeking the city, which what? Is to come. So it points us to a future hope. That's a summary of all the theology and history of Hebrews. The rest of the details, we're actually going to do a New Testament survey class on Hebrews pretty soon for Sunday school in a few weeks. So we'll cover more details then. But that's enough to get us thinking about what's happening in this book and its basic background. Now, to see how all these doctrines unfold, we're going to start right back at the beginning, the beginning of Hebrews. So please turn to chapter 1, and we'll read the text that we're going to be considering tonight. We call this the prologue, which just simply means it's the word before the main part of the letter. The prologue of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, I do believe the book of Hebrews, if it hasn't already, I do believe it will change your life. It's changed my life. And every time I study it again, it changes more of me. And it makes me more and more like Christ. And it points me more and more to the end of myself. It points me more and more to the hope we have in Christ. This is the Word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we can trust every single word of it. So let's ask for His power, His strength as we study it. Let's go to Him in a time of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do, we do love you. We do love your word. We know that all of your word is life-changing, and all of it equips us for righteousness. It, it makes us adequate for every good work. It trains us in godliness. It trains us in righteousness. And, Lord, it does bring us to the end of who we are. It shows us that we're hopeless without Christ. And, Lord, I pray that we would not get tired of that theme and that we would be able to preach it and speak of it every single week here with the believers. And, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to us. And, Lord, I pray that we find our hope in you tonight and that what we see about Christ, that we get a, at least a small glimpse of his glory. And we do pray this in his name. Amen. So as we look at this passage tonight, the specific teaching, the main thing I want you to get is the superiority, the superiority of the Son as God's final messenger. The superiority of the Son of Christ as God's final messenger. Now, if you look at verses 1 through 4 again, in Greek, it's all one really long sentence. Now, we don't usually have sentences that are that long, but they often did back in the day. And if you were to look at the heart, what would be the main subject and the main verb of this long sentence? What would be the main subject, or who would be the main subject? God. And what's the main verb? If you had to pull out your grammar, I know some of you, especially Frank Bella Jonas, he loves to pull out his, his grammar magnifying glass and find the main verb. What would the main verb be? Spoken. God has spoken as the heart of this sentence. And he's done this through messengers. So I want to draw your attention to, number one, God's former messengers. In verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways, doesn't finish the sentence yet, he's talking about God's former messengers. What time frame is in view here? It says, long ago. In a galaxy far, far away, right? No, not quite. Long ago, but when? In the Old Testament era, right? And the fathers refers to, to God's people all throughout the Old Testament times. Now, who were these messengers? So it calls them the prophets here. So it could refer to the major and the minor prophets, but I think it could be referring to all of God's messengers throughout the whole Old Testament era. The prophets. God's spokesmen. And what were their methods? It says it's in many portions and in many ways. What are some of the, the ways God used? He used tablets of stone. He used the prophecies of Isaiah. He used the visions of Ezekiel, which we're still trying to figure out some of them. And he used the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretations of those dreams by Daniel the prophet. He even made a donkey talk, which if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. He used all these different means, all these different methods, all kinds of times, all kinds of different ways to deliver his message. 
Now, which makes us ask the next question, what was their message? What was the message of these spokesmen? Their message, ultimately, if you had to put it all together, they all had different emphases, all different time frames, but if you had to put it all together, it was the promise of redemption, the promise of the coming of Christ to set things right and to establish an eternal kingdom. So God used Daniel to promise the destruction of human kingdoms and the establishment of a kingdom that would last forever, the one Christ would set up. Through Ezekiel, God promised that he would act on behalf of his people, his chosen people, Israel. And God commissioned Isaiah to announce the hope of the Messiah, the, the hope that Messiah would bring. You know, chapter 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And who's that light? It's the light of Christ. And then verse 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Count, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the promise. This is their message. And what did the tablets of stone do? They would ultimately point us to Christ. They'd become our tutor to lead us to Christ so we could be justified by faith. To say that, hey, you cannot earn this on your own through personal merit, through personal effort. It's impossible. It only shows you that sinfulness of sin and the glory of Christ. All these methods, all these ways, and, and, and all driving toward the message of redemption that Christ would bring. Now, the next question we ask about these former prophets, was their message complete? Did they, did they preach a completed message? There is a sense of incompleteness to what they said, because these were fallible men, sinful men, delivering these messages, and their message at the time of their life, was it fulfilled or unfulfilled? It was yet unfulfilled. So there is a sense of, incom of incompleteness. These spokesmen, they lived in an era of promise. Today, we live in an era of what? Fulfillment. So there's a stark contrast, a big difference. So although, you could read in this first verse, although God used all these varied methods, all these different messengers to announce the promise of the gospel, he has fulfilled it through one final messenger. So number two, God's final messenger, verses two through four. So we talked about some questions for the, those former messengers. What about the time frame for this final messenger? What's the time frame? It says, in these last days, the days of the New Testament era, the days after the resurrection of Christ, the days as we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. This is the time frame. It's a new era. Now who's the messenger? It says, he used to speak through the prophets. Now he has spoken in his son. So it's not various fallible spokesmen, but this is God's own perfect son. Now what was his message? Turn to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47. We'll hear his own words. Luke 24, 44 through 47. This is Jesus speaking. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, where? In the law of Moses. Where else? In the prophets. And where else? In the Psalms. Must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And now he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the, day, from, from the dead the third day. Verse 47. 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what's, what's his message? Fulfillment. I've come. I've come to bring good news. I've come to die and rise again on the third day and then to announce forgiveness of sins, repentance and forgiveness of sins. I've come to bring the good news. And I've come to establish messengers who will continue to preach the same exact message that I've established. That's his message, is the gospel. Now, we've called, we're calling him the final messenger. What makes his message final? What makes him the final messenger? What is it that qualifies him to be the final messenger of God? He is the final messenger because of who he is and what he's done. He is the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment because, why is he the fulfillment? Because he himself is God. God become man. He's God in the flesh. This is how he can be the final messenger. Now, I want you to really look carefully at verses uh, 2 through, the, through, through verse 4. And I want you to notice how many descriptions it gives of Jesus Christ. It's this long string of descriptions about Christ. If you had to count them up, if I gave you time, you'd count there'd be eight. Some people would say seven if you put certain ones together, but I'd see eight descriptions of Christ. And what you'll notice about these descriptions is, could they be applied to any old man or any, old, any woman? Could they be applied to humans? Not a single one of them. They all can only apply to God himself. So it's teaching us that when we preach Christ, we're preaching the person and work of the triune Godhead. So how does Hebrews start? What are the very first words of Hebrews? It starts with an infinitely high view of Jesus. So let's look at these eight descriptions, and we're going to let the text speak for itself. When, when, Sermon, when Spurgeon preached the, this, these few verses, he said, we're going to have to let this text speak for itself. He said, if to try to do otherwise, it would be like trying to hold a candle up to the sun, maybe to help out the sun, to give some light. So we have to see what this says. Look at number one. If you're taking notes, number one, what makes him the final messenger? Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns everything. Look what the text says. He is the heir of all things. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the word heir? Not A-I-R, like being in the air, but being the heir of something. You think of someone often who passively inherits something that he was, you know, because he was born into a certain family. And often it inspires jealousy because we think, wow, he just gets the inheritance because he was born into the right family. Now, is, was Jesus just born into the right family? Becomes the heir of all things? No, he was the original owner. And what qualifies him as the original owner? Look at the next statement, number two. Because he created everything. He owns everything because he created everything. Our text says, through whom God also made the world. Now I want you to know something there. When it says that God made the world through Christ, does that mean that Jesus was like a junior partner or maybe God's apprentice in creation? He said to make it through him. Maybe he could create Jesus and then use Jesus to create the world through him. Are there any religions that teach that? You betcha there are. But is that, what's, what, is that what the text is saying? He was an apprentice. No. It's not what it's saying at all. Because we could look through several parts of Scripture. It says the same thing about God. What does it say about God the Father in Romans 11? It says, from him, through him, to him are all things. Same language. Look at verse 10 of, of Hebrews chapter 1. It says that in the beginning, Jesus laid the foundation of the heaven and the earth. And in Colossians 1.16, you don't have to turn there right now, but it says that 
All things were created through Jesus, same language, and for Jesus. So, no, he was not a junior partner. He was not an apprentice. He did create the world. This is Jesus creating the world. So the point is that the Bible ascribes the work of creation to both the Father and the Son and the Spirit in various places. Uh, an old theologian named Shedd, he said, he said it this way. He said, when, when creation is directly ascribed to the Father, the Son is not excluded any more than when redemption is directly ascribed to the Son, the Father is not excluded there either. So sometimes the Bible ascribes it to different members of the Trinity, pointing to them that they're all at work in this act of creation. So he was not a created being. He was the creator. Now look at number three. Jesus shows us God's glory. Jesus shows us God's glory. Yes, when you walk out tonight, if it's not raining, the sun will still be shining on our part of the earth, won't it? How far away is that light coming from? you're not like a scientist who remembers all those numbers like me, I had to look it up again. 94 million miles away. I probably got that wrong. 94 million miles away, the sun is hanging above us, shining its light, its rays of light down on us, traveling from a great distance. So just like light radiates from the sun, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. His glory, God's glory shines, and we see it through Christ. And this is exactly how the Apostle John begins his, the Gospel of John, isn't it? Chapter 1. All he keeps returning back to is this theme of glory. He talks about the Son. He talks about the Word. He talks about glory. They're one and the same. Now, and you, you, know, you know these verses, but chapter 1, verse 14, the Gospel of John. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his what? We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if Jesus were just a man, or even just a powerful man, or even a powerful angel, would we have a problem with this statement right here? Jesus being the radiance of God's glory? Would there be a problem? Would there be a disconnect? Would there be an inconsistency with Scripture? You bet there'd be a huge inconsistency. And why is that? Because God's not going to share his glory with anyone. And you know Isaiah, he says, I'm the Lord, that's my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not share my glory. The glory my glory is my ultimate purpose in this world. It's my ultimate purpose for everything I've done and everything I am doing, everything I will do. And I'm not going to share it with anybody. So why now is he saying in Hebrews, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory? It's because Jesus himself is God. He's God in the flesh, and because of that, we have beheld his glory. This is God's glory in the face of Christ. All right, there's some questions that you should raise your hand to and some you should not raise your hand to. So this next question, has anyone ever seen God? Has anyone ever seen God? The text says next, number four, that he's the exact representation of God's nature. Number four, Jesus embodies who God is. He perfectly and completely represents who God is. He perfectly and completely represents God's nature. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one's seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So that's at the beginning of John. Remember Philip's, Philip's question to Jesus and Jesus' response in chapter 14? Jesus said to, to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? 
thought, my, I thought he'd look at me, but he's not. He's still coloring away. Uh, I've been with you so long, you've not really come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen whom? The Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? You've seen the Father. I've explained him. I embody who God the Father is. I am God in the flesh. I am the Christ. This is who Jesus is. And number five, notice that Jesus holds everything together. He holds everything together. It says he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the sustainer of the entire universe. All things. So how does he do this? How does the text say he does this? By his word. By speaking. And you know it's a significant word in the Bible, this idea of the word being spoken from God and what it can do. Genesis chapter 1, you go back to the very beginning of the Bible. God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. God said such and such, and it was so. Then God said, and it was so. This is the power of God's word. This is how Christ holds the world together. Psalm 50 says, The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Now, can any old man suspend the, the planets in space? Hold them all together? Hold the world where it belongs? Hold us all here? And if you believe the world is round, which we should, not falling off the side of the world and that kind of thing, is it possible for us to do that? It's possible for Christ. He does it how? By the word of his power. Now, when I was in Bible college, there was a uh, guest preacher, and he made us do a test to see what kind of power we might have had with our, with our words. And he held a pen up like this, and he said, I want everyone to shout at this pen, with, just with your words, say, stand. So there we all said, stand. And sure enough, it didn't stand. And again, we tried this with Grace on Campus last year, and we couldn't make it stand there either. This is not the power that we have, but this is the power that belongs to God and God alone. He holds everything together. Now, there's another problem. We're born with eyes that are blind to this glory, aren't we? Blind to this power, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's how we're born. We're born in sin and born without God. We're born without hope in the world. On our own, it's impossible for us to be anything but the objects of God's wrath and the objects of God's justice. That's how, that's how we are. That's our condition when we're born into this world. Now, what, what is it that makes... There's a lot of talk about rats in this church now. <laughs> Not rats in the building. Don't worry. Your coffee's safe back there, but just rats in general. What makes them so repulsive? What makes rats so repulsive? Why do we not like them? Why not make them pets? Well, it's because they're born into filth, aren't they? And then how do they survive? They survive on filth. And then they multiply by the hundreds and the thousands, and they just become this most repulsive species that we know of. And they, they transmit diseases, all kinds of things. And the point is that they don't know how filthy their situation is because that's all they know. That's all they've grown up. That's what all they've experienced. They don't know anything cleaner. They don't know anything better. And that's exactly how it is with us. We're born into such a rotten, sinful condition, apart from Christ, that we don't even know how sinful we are. There was once a preacher who, in his sermon, compared sinful man to rats. And it was some kind of conference, and he was due to preach twice that day. And after the first sermon, some people said, hey, you really need to apologize for that kind of language. For, you, for comparing us to rats. Okay, okay. 
And he, he, got to, he gets up for the next sermon and starts as, I need to make an apology to everyone. He said, in my last sermon, I compared mankind to rats. He says, I need to apologize to the rats. <laughs> but as funny as that is, it's true. We were born into that condition. It's a big problem. So what is our hope? Number six, what did Jesus do? Jesus has made purification of sins. We're born rotten. We're born stinking and stenching. But Jesus has purified us. Those who are in Christ purified us from our sin. He's cleaned us from the inside out. This is why the gospel is good news. Jesus accomplished what we could never do. And this work is effective. It works. God justifies his people by faith, and he sets them apart as holy. And when he looks at us, because of our justification, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of us. No, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And as he's done, as he's done that, he's in the process also of making us more and more personally like Christ. As we progress in holiness, as we persevere in the faith. This is God's work. It's effective. And it's effective because of the one who performed it not because of the one he performed it on. And it's also a finished work. There's really not a better truth about the gospel besides this, that it's finished. It's a done work. We don't have to keep repeating it. He's completed it. This is what makes the gospel so liberating. Our salvation, now that we got some pyromaniacs here in the building who are really good with firework displays on the 4th of July, and I love them, but when it goes up, bursts with excitement, and then it's gone. Is our salvation like that? Not a thing like that. It's a permanent work in us because it's a finished work. Christ completed it. Now, how do we know this is a finished work? What did Jesus do after he made purification of sins? He sat down. He sat down. Now, was it a time for vacation because his work was done? Was it a time for leisure? Time for recreation? No, what's he doing now? What's he at work doing today? Number seven, he's ruling and reigning today. It says, after he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, the world can tolerate a loving Jesus, can't it? The world can tolerate a suffering Jesus. The world can tolerate a serving Jesus. The world can tolerate an exemplary Jesus, someone that, with a good example to follow. But what can the world not tolerate? It's a ruling Jesus, a reigning Jesus. That's where they draw the line, saying, nope, I got my own life, and I want to lead it the way I want to lead it, and I don't want anyone, especially someone you're claiming to be, have written about 32,000 years ago, I'm not going to follow him. But he is on the throne, and he is reigning, and he is our sovereign king. Now, how does he have the right to do that? How does he have the right to be our sovereign king? Look at the last description kind of strikes us as odd to say after all this that Jesus is better than the angels. Why would he say that? After all these huge statements about his glory, now we need to prove that he's better than the angels? Well, we'll see why mainly next week, but look what it says. Jesus is better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And who are angels, by the way? They're also messengers. God's heavenly messengers. That's what the name means, messenger. 
Now, it may not appear so at first, but there's a great deal of significance to Jesus having a better name than the angels. Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Now, what is his name? Is Lord, is this a respectful title that's given to Jesus in Philippians 2 and throughout the New Testament? Or is there something more to it? Look at Isaiah 45. I'll give you a second to turn there. What's in this name? Isaiah 45. And look at verse 22. Isaiah 45, 22. Who's speaking here? This is the Lord. This is Yahweh speaking. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back. Now I ask, answer if this sounds familiar, what he's about to say. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Paul had in mind when he wrote Philippians chapter 2. Who is it applied to in Philippians chapter 2? It's applied to the Christ. It's applied to Jesus. That he is this Lord. That he is the one true God. Not one God in the Old Testament and applied to another God in the New Testament. It's the same Lord. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ himself. The name mentioned here is none other than the name Lord, Yahweh. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is who it's talking about. This is the name that Jesus has inherited that makes him better than the angels, that makes him better than even the best heavenly messengers. He is Yahweh himself. So from beginning to end, Hebrews is a book about Jesus. And it's only taken how many verses? Four verses to tell us exactly what Jesus is like and what he's done. Started right away proving this point of who Jesus is. He's the owner of all. He's the creator of all. He reveals God's glory. He embodies who God is. He's the sustainer of all. He's the substitute for our sin. He's the king of all. He's the one true God. This is who Christ is. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples that they were blessed, that they had blessed eyes, blessed ears. Why? Why did he tell them that they were blessed? Because there were many prophets Many righteous men who lived in the Old Testament days who would have given their right arm, who desired strongly to see the kind of things that the disciples saw about the Christ and the coming of Christ, but they didn't see it. And they wanted to hear about the fulfillment of these promises. The disciples heard this, but those prophets and righteous men, they didn't get to hear it. They passed away before it happened. So he calls them blessed. Now, how much more blessed are we who are even 2,000 years removed. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have all the promises that are recorded for us. Some have been fulfilled. Some we're waiting to be fulfilled. And we have 2,000 years of church history to prove that nothing's going to prevail against Christ's church, and that he's going to build his church. We are truly blessed people to be here at the end of seeing God's message unfold throughout history. We are blessed to have Jesus as our final messenger. So why do we settle for such less? And every day-to-day business, why do we settle for such less? Why do we settle for less news? Why do we spend all our time reading the news and not reading the scriptures and being absorbed by what it says, not being enamored by the glory of Christ? Why do we do this? 
I have no great answer for that except let's get back into the Word and see the glory of Christ and make the glory of Christ your goal this week to learn something even new about Christ. Not make up something new, but look in the Scriptures and see something you've never seen before. Make that a goal this week. And why do we think that we have to improve on the gospel in different ways, all kinds of different ways? Jesus is the final messenger. He's not final in that there's no more preachers, right? Or else we wouldn't need to be standing up here right now. He still has his ambassadors. But when we say he's the final messenger, we mean that there's nothing more to add. The message is a completed message. We can't add to what Christ has already announced. The gospel is not a progressive message that changes with time and culture. It's the same always. Because Jesus, Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His doctrine never changes. We don't need to add anything to it. And it was the same good news that the Old Testament saints looked forward to, the same thing that the New Testament disciples preached, and it's the same good news that we preach today. He's the final messenger. Now, we talked a great deal about theology tonight, and I don't apologize for that at all, because the Holy Spirit never wastes any words. And he's going to put them to very good use in the next two sections. So as we wrap up, uh, and as you consider this week the glory of Christ, answer this question in your head and as you think ahead in the book of Hebrews. Why, again, does the author of Hebrews need to prove that Jesus is better than the angels? Why use the angels in particular? So that will whet your appetite to consider what's going to happen in the next passage. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help, for his message to be solidified in our hearts and to give him the glory this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for these first four verses of Hebrews and what they teach us in such a small section about the glory of Christ and what he's done and what he is doing and how we can trust him and how he is God himself. Lord, we do pray that we would give him the glory this week 